So we've been going through the book of Zechariah and we're at chapter 9 now. And um, we had mentioned before that uh, the book of Zechariah can be uh, divided almost into two parts. A first part which was a whole bunch of visions. Um, and then the second part which is sort of more to do with the coming of the Messiah. And the two are not unrelated. Um, the visions at the beginning were all about re encouraging the people to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. And they had started building it and then they, they got distracted by building their own homes and building their own things for themselves. And, and they stopped building the temple. And so God sent them Haggai to give them a good slap in the face and tell them, you know, there's no blessing in your life because you've forgotten God. That was Haggai. And then in the book of Zechariah, God is encouraging them and giving them a word of encouragement to rebuild the temple. Um, and the visions are really beautiful, but they were really strange. And quite frankly, without a commentary, without some kind of help, uh, there wasn't a lot that one could have maybe gotten from them. So that was a lot of fun, and we did that already. Now we're into chapter 9, um, sort of chapter sort of 8 or 9 to the end is talking about the coming Messiah. There's things, I think, in this chapter, chapter 9, I think that you will, you'll kind of recognize from other things you've heard or read. And so maybe what we'll do is we'll read the chapter, and then... Um, and then I'll ask you for your comments. I'll ask you for what you like and so on. And, and I think there's, a, uh, there's at least a couple of things maybe here that there are at least a one or two things that I think you'll maybe might resonate with you and you'll, uh, right? So, and we just as a, a men, like mentioning, what's the relationship between rebuilding the temple and the coming Messiah? We we're talking about how that the Messiah is the the divinity and the humanity together. He is the, 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 the human, the physical dwelling place of the fullness of the divinity of God, right? And so he, the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation became the place where God could be seen, could be touched, could be felt, where you could hear, his, hear him speaking to you, where he, could, he would touch the leper, you know, this... And so the rebuilding of the temple is rebuilding the place where God can be accessed, you know? So God who is out there, you know what I mean? And then now there's a, a place that, where, you can, where they can go and, um, and, meet, and meet God. And so this kind of relationship between the rebuilding of the, uh, rebuilding of the temple and the incarnation. And we've also, the summary of what we've been talking about for a few weeks, also been talking about how like we can take this very personally as not just a rebuilding of the temple but saint paul says do you not know that you are the temple of the holy spirit and the spirit of god dwells within you so the temple the dwelling place of god is also us and so as we've been reading through zechariah we've been we've been um looking at this rebuilding of the temple as the rebuilding of my spiritual life the replacing of building of a place in my life for god um uh, and words of encouragement in that regard, right? In contrast to Haggai, which was words of rebuke, also with the same purpose of <laughs> chop, chop, hurry up, and let's start building. You should, you should have been building the temple a long time ago. 
So let's read uh, Zechariah chapter 9. Um, and uh, feel free to, uh, after I finish reading it, I'll ask you sort of what you liked and so on. So maybe take note of, of the things that, that you thought were, uh, were nice. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord... Sorry, I realize I should be reading here. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also will be very sorrowful and Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Glory be to the Holy Trinity, our God, unto the ages of all ages. Amen. So maybe we just read Zechariah chapter 9. Maybe you can uh, go back and look through it and see if there's anything that resonated with you or anything that you recognize or anything that you particularly uh, enjoyed.
So, I mean, if we just, in, in very broad strokes, if we, um, just turning, putting these, bringing these headings back. So the, the first kind of section in this chapter is Israel being defended from their enemies. And then the next kind of section in this chapter is the coming of the king and that God will save his people, right? So, and in this coming of the king bit, maybe you might recognize this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? Does that ring any bells? Yeah, from Palm Sunday, right? And this, is, and this prophecy, and you'll find this prophecy appearing word for word in the book of Matthew, um, right? And, and we'll talk a little bit about, about this prophecy and why, what it means and why it's so beautiful to us uh, and also how we can kind of understand it. But it's kind of sandwiched between these other two sections, being defended from their enemies and that God will save his people. I'm going to start by telling you a story you may have heard before, you may not, which is not, doesn't have anything to do with the book of Zechariah. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament that demonstrates God's protection of us. And quite frankly, if I'm going to be really honest, how oblivious I am of his protection of me. So oftentimes I look at the near misses, like when I almost got hit by a car, when I almost this, and I thank God for those things, that he saved me from those things. Or I look at the times that, that I don't know, bad things happened in my life, and sometimes I get upset with God. God, why did you leave me, and why didn't you save me, and whatnot, right? But you see, the issue is that we don't know what the denominator is. What do I mean by that? So, how many times did God rescue me? Well, I don't really know. I know about the near misses. I know how many times I almost got hit by a car. But I have no, no idea how many times God sent the guy that was texting and driving or, 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 or driving drunk or whatever in some other direction. And I never got 
and, and, I, and, I, and I never even encountered that person, right? We, never, we don't actually know how many times God rescued us except the times that were near misses, right? So, let me tell you a story from the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite stories because it really illustrates this. If you remember, Moses takes the people out of Egypt and they wander around through the desert for 40 years and they're about to enter what is, would be the promised land. And the last nation they had to cross through was Moab. Moab, the Moabites, Ruth was a Moabitess. She was from the, the, Moab, from the land of Moab. Who, is, who are these Moabites? They were the people of the land of Moab. Who was Moab? Remember, uh, Abraham had, a, had, had a, a nephew, Lot, and he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, and bad stuff happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It didn't end well for the, for the Sodom and Gomorrah people, right? And Lot escapes with his two daughters, and then his two daughters realize that, oh, there, there will be no continuation of the line of our father, so they actually have an incestuous relationship with him. They sleep with their father, and they have children. One of them was Ammon, from which came the, the Ammonites, and the other one was Moab, right? And so God told the children of Israel, don't do any harm to them because they're family to you, right? And God told the Moabites, be kind to them when they pass through your land, but they didn't listen. They didn't really believe in God anyways. The Ammonites and the Moabites, they had all these idols and they, they worshipped Molech and they burned their children alive as human sacrifices and they were really horrific, horrific people. So Moses sends word to the king of Moab, says, look, we're going to pass through your country. We're going we're gonna to need to drink from your wells and give to our animals to drink from your wells. We won't, you know, whatever we touch, we will pay for, Right? And the king of Moab tells him, get lost. If you enter my country, I'm going to go to war with you. No water, no nothing, tough luck, right? Well, they were through and God was, God was the one leading them. So they followed God. They didn't listen to the king of Moab. So what did the king of Moab do? The king of Moab went and hired a prophet named uh, Balaam. And he took him up on a mountain and he said, look, you see the people in the valley there? I want you to curse them for me. So the prophet says, sure, no problem. So he starts to conjure up his curses and then God changes it to a blessing. So the king gets really angry. He's like, I hired you to curse them and then you bless them? Okay, I'll take you, I'll take, take you on another mountain. So he takes him up another mountain, same thing. Takes him up a third mountain, same thing. He's taking him up a fourth mountain to curse them. And every time he opens his mouth to curse them, it turns into a blessing. The donkey <laughs> of the prophet stops. So he starts kicking the donkey and whipping the donkey to go up the mountain and the donkey won't move. So he gets off the, off the donkey to start beating the donkey and the donkey turns around and tells him, do you not see the angel standing in the path with his sword drawn ready to kill you and me? The donkey talks to the prophet. That's how thick he was, you know, <laughs> right? And the story of the talking donkey is probably the most famous part of the story, right? And then Balaam says to the, the king of Moab, he says, I can only speak the words which God puts in my mouth. 
if he says to me, bless them, I will bless them. And if he says to me, curse them, I will curse them. And there's some other beautiful things that are said there, but that's pretty much how the story goes. Now, my favorite part of the story is not the talking donkey. I think for most people, the, their favorite part of the story is the talking donkey. Whenever somebody says talking donkey, I see Shrek with the talking donkey. Like that's, you know, that's, that's what comes to my mind, right? But my favorite part of the story is all of this story is happening on the mountaintops. Who's down in the valley? The people of God. The people of God never find out about this, except th through Moses, and Moses must have been told by God. How many times was God, was I in the valley, and the forces of evil, whatever they may be, were on the mountains trying to curse me, you know? And I have no clue. I had no clue. So sometimes I get angry with God. God, why didn't you save me from this? You never helped me, right? Or whatever. I'm not saying you say that. I say that sometimes, right? But the reality is, is I actually don't know the, the, the denominator. Like God allowed me to go pass through difficult times. You know, that's the numerator of the fraction. But the denominator, how many times did he save me? How many times did he rescue me? In quality assurance in medicine in my past life, a big, big problem we had is like, if, if you don't like your doctor, you don't go back. You get a second opinion and then you just go there. And your doctor is busy, so they never follow up with you. And, you know, I may, as a doctor, I may go on for the rest of my life thinking I'm the best doctor in the world, right? Because the people who are complaining don't complain to me. They just go and get a second opinion and get on with their lives, right? So I don't know what's the denominator you know, what's the denominator? I only know what the, what the numerator is, so to speak, right? Here we see something really beautiful, how Israel is going to be defended from their enemies. So in the beginning, there's all these names of places, okay? So the burden of the word of the Lord, the burden of the word of the Lord, you'll find that oftentimes in the prophecies. That means like God is going to speak against something. He's going to speak a prophecy Okay, bad stuff is going to go down somewhere. And he's telling us where. Okay, bad stuff is going to go down in the land of Hedrach. Hedrach was a city in Syria. And Damascus, capital of Syria, in the land of Hedrach, the land of Hedrach is Syria. And Damascus, its resting place, the capital of Syria. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. He's saying at this point, Everybody is waiting to see what the Lord is going to do. Okay? We're going to just read this first part and then I'll, I'll, I'll share with you a little bit more. Against Hamath. Hamath was a, a city on the river Orontes. The river Orontes is like the major river that runs through Syria. And against Tyre and Sidon, though they are wise. The people of Tyre and Sidon were really, really, really good merchants. This town, the cities of Tyre and Sidon were like some of the southernmost coastal cities. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about, about them. Tyre built for herself a tower, heaped up silver like dust and gold like mire in, of the streets. Mire is like, uh, is like mud, you know. Um, so in, in Tyre, the, the silver is like dust. Like there's so much silver, you can't even count it. And, and gold entire, he's saying, is, is like the mud in the streets. There's so much of it. They're so wealthy. It's like nothing to them, right? 
Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see and fear. Now these next cities here, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod, these four cities are Philistine cities. Okay? Ashkelon shall see and fear. So a different nation now. He's talking, before he's talking about Syria, north of Israel. Now he's talking about land of the Philistines, south of Israel. Okay? Gaza shall be all very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines and take away the blood from his mouth and the ab ab abominations from him. But he who remains shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah. And Ekron, like a Jebusite, I will camp. And then, and then starts this bit, I will camp around my house. So we're going to just talk about the first sort of seven verses. What's he talking about here? Okay, again, I would have no way to know this unless I, I read a little bit. I'm not uh, as, as good at um, the history of the antiquities as I, I wish I was. Um, but I had the opportunity to read a little bit and it's really beautiful. He's talking here about how these, remember, these are the nations that troubled Israel. These were their neighbors. And instead of being their neighbors and supporting them in times of difficulty and in times of trial and so on, they actually invaded them. Many times you find that the Syrians sent raiders into Israel. Uh, I don't know if you remember a story of Elisha, the prophet, and um, they, uh, they, they sent raiders in. Every time they would send raiders, Elisha would go and tell the king where the raiders are going to raid, right? And so uh, the, the king of Syria says, who's the snitch? He gathers his viziers into his courtroom, shuts the doors and says, who's the snitch? Who's going and telling the king of Israel what our military plans are? Because every time I send a little band of raiders to a village to raid, raid it and pillage, pillage it and take the people away as slaves and all this, I find the entire army of Israel there, right? And I sent like a, a small band of raiders because they're just raiding a village, you know? And I find the entire army of Israel somebody is giving him uh, somebody's leaking news right and they tell him they tell him no nobody it's it's not us there's a man of god in israel they tell him about elisha the prophet and he tells the king in his ear what you do in your bedroom read between the lines <laughs> right there's some pretty funny stuff some pretty naughty stuff in uh, in scripture if you if you pay attention right so the king of Syria sends an army to go get this man of God. Go kill him. Go get him. Go do something to him. Right? And the army, the king of Syria sends this army. And then this Elisha's servant sees them outside. He freaks out. He calls Elisha in. And Elisha says, open his eyes that he may see. And when he opens his eyes, the servant of Elisha can see that the heavens are full of angels of fire to protect them. And God, and then Elisha strikes them with blindness and he takes them to Samaria, the capital of Israel, the, the Syrian raiders, opens their eyes while they're in the citadel and they're surrounded now, right? Feeds them a banquet, has the king tells them, prepare them a banquet and sends them home. And it says that in, in the days of Elisha, the prophet, the raiders from Syria 
harassed Israel no more. So we can see like, like it says in Proverbs, like a kind word turns away wrath, you know. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, you know. But that is, those were the Syrians. They were, they were harassing Israel, right? And the Philistines harassed Israel a lot. And David and Goliath and all that. Well, those were the Philistines, right? So God is saying here, and we, ta we talked about this in chapter 1 and also last week, how God is saying here, look, I allowed those nations and... and get in Habakkuk. If you read Habakkuk, it's only three chapters. The story of Habakkuk is God, Habakkuk is having a conversation with God and it opens with Habakkuk asking God, why do the wicked prosper? That's what he says. Why do the wicked get away with it? Why do the bad guys get away with murder? Right? And God's answer to Habakkuk, which he also said in Zechariah chapter 1 and also said in Zechariah, I think chapter 8, was God allowed these foreign nations to be a rebuke to Israel because of their idolatry. But they're not going to get away with it. And he allowed them to, um, uh, to like discipline Israel, but they didn't just discipline Israel, they were vicious with them, right? We saw that in chapter one where he says, and they went way overboard, you know what I mean? So it's sort of like if, 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 uh, you know, like like a like a prince, a, a teacher is having difficulty with a student in their class. They take him to the principal's office, and the principal tells the teacher, "Look, you're gonna have to discipline him a little bit." You know, so the kid teacher takes the kid back to the class and beats him till he's black and blue. You know, that's not what God said. You know, so you find here God is now God is now here. doing justice by Israel according to like for these nations that had troubled them. So the first part here is about Syria, right? Now what's this business of Tyre and Sidon? I want to pause here for a minute. There's beautiful things that could be said about each of the cities, but I'm just going to kind of limit it to Tyre and Sidon. What's this business with Tyre and Sidon? So Tyre, the city of Tyre that had built it has a little peninsula that goes out into the Mediterranean Sea. They had built a huge tower on that peninsula and it was something of which they were very proud you know like it might have been like people some historians say it might have been like a even like a symbol of their city you know uh like like the cn what the cn tower is to toronto this is this tower would have been to them and when they would get attacked there was like a wall around the city when they would get attacked they would fill the tower with with uh with like uh, food and storage and stuff like that. And th the people of the city would all go and hide in the tower um, and against their enemies. So this tower was this thing they had built, which was their protection against the enemies, their pride, their like nationalistic, patriotic pride. Everything was like this tower, right? In addition, they were very good merchants. They were really good at business, right? So they were very wealthy. So a lot of their wealth was also hidden in this tower. So you see here, like this talks about like this the, the destruction of, of this tower, right? And it, this tower could be seen by ships and so on on the Mediterranean Sea from a ways away because it was so big and it was so tall, right? So he's saying here that he, God will says, I will destroy the tower. I will cut it down. 
What's he talking about here? Abuna Tadras tells us, like, obviously he's talking about the self. He's talking about the ego. He's talking about me. I built myself up. I am strong. I am powerful. I am rich. Look at me. You know, my pride. My, you know. And he's saying, he, and he's telling us this. Remember, this is in the context of, remember, this is in the context of the coming king. And this is in the context of God will save his people. God will save me from what? God will save me from me. God will save me from myself. God will save me from my ego. God will save me from my pride. God will save me from my, my self, being self-willed. Remember, being a disciple of Jesus is actually very simple. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, right? So that's a little bit about this business of this, of this tower, right? She has built for, heaped up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Now, the fathers tell us beautiful things. They tell us that for the person who's full of themselves, they chase after wealth, but they can never have enough. They have silver like dust, and they didn't then, when they became an incredibly rich city, fire, they didn't then say, okay, well, we're rich enough. We don't need to do business anymore. Let's do something else. No, they continued to be business people, right? When uh, St. John Chrysostom talks about the love of money, he says that the love of money and gluttony are very much related, right? In that they are rooted in a sense of entitlement for something which is not yours. Like, I eat my fill and then I want to eat more. Well, but I ate, like, I ate what my body needs, so why do I want more? For the pleasure of eating more, but, but why? But it's not... It's not rightfully mine, you know? And the love of money, the same thing. Like, why should I have so much money while the poor starve, right? He says, but the problem, the problem, why the love of money is different from gluttony or lust of the flesh, like sexual lust, is because gluttony and sexual lust have certain physiological limitations. You can only eat so much. Eventually, you just won't be able to eat anymore. Right? If you're gluttonous or lust of the flesh, if you're like sexual lust, I mean, you can only satisfy it to a certain degree and after that you won't be able to anymore. But he says love of money is more wicked because you can continue to amass wealth endlessly. Like you can never, you can never run out of place to store wealth. And so this is what, this is what, what's, what's, uh, referred to here, they've heaped up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. But Abuna Tadra says something really beautiful. He says, all of these cities that are mentioned here, Tyre, Sidon, Ekron, Gaza, Ashkelon, all of these cities were evangelized. All of these cities became Christian. And the cities, Ashdod, but in Ashdod, they, they worshipped a god named Ashdod. You know what they used to do to worship? They, they would have orgies, and then at the end of their orgies, they would, they would sacrifice like the people that they had orgies with. It was crazy, like human sacrifices. It was crazy. These people were, these people were depraved. They were like, like, we think there's wickedness in the world today, and there certainly is, you know, uh, uh, child pornography, human trafficking. There's all kinds of atrocities in the world today, I'm not saying. But the world back then was horrific. It was absolutely horrific, right? 
These nations, each one of these, became centers of Christianity, Abu Tadros tells us, right? And Abu Tadros Malati in his, in his commentary on this book, right? And he says here that the silver became like their good deeds. When, once they became evangelized, the silver is no longer a silver of wealth, but the silver which is refined in the refiner's fire, right? Which is like their good deeds. And the gold is holiness. The gold is always symbolic of holiness or of purity, you know? So what a, what, what a transformation, right? Going on a little bit here. So a mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. Let me just pull up my notes. Oh, I didn't even share with you the most, the most beautiful part about this. Uh, but I'll just tell you about this mixed race. Yeah. So, you know what's the most beautiful thing about this? Is that, and it's going to become more obvious in a minute. Here, he, what he's talking, what he's actually talking about contextually. Remember early, early, early in the series, we said that, the prophecies can be interpreted in four different ways. They could be interpreted in their historical context. They can be interpreted in regards to the coming of the Messiah. They can be recorded, interpreted in the, in the context of the coming, the second coming, or they can be interpreted in the context of like a, like a spiritual context for my own personal spiritual life, right? In its historical context, you know what uh, uh, um, Zachariah is talking about here? So what, what happened about a hundred years after Zechariah's prophecy? Alexander the Great came and conquered that entire region, right? And he did exactly, exactly what's written here. He, when he attack, came to attack Tyre, the people were so terrified of him. By boat, they, they left Tyre and Sidon and they went to the neighboring islands that were just there. So you know what he did? He destroyed this tower, and from this tower, he built a pier to the nearest island, and he slaughtered them. Alexander the Great was, like, was brutality like we've never seen. I mean, he's recorded in history as like some, some famous, amazing person, but Alexander, Alexander the Great was the person who perfected Crucifixion. It wasn't the Romans, it was Alexander the Great. The Persians invented it, right? But but he thought it was just he was just thought it was the most most fantastic way of declaring victory was to, to take your enemy, hang them naked, and, and and torture them, but over a span of four or five days, you know, and let them asphyxiate, starve, and dehydrate to death, you know, after having tortured them. Right? And that's what he did to the Persians, but he learned it from them, right? So the crucifixion of Christ was probably was the, 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 the person who kind of brought it to, 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 that, to that level was Alexander the Great. So he destroys the tower, uses the tower to make, to, and then continued to use the stones of the tower to go from one island to the next, 
until he killed them all. So the fathers comment on this and they say that the self, the self of the Tower of Tyre is our own destruction. Is our own destruction. And Jesus is coming to set us free from ourselves. You see, what's the problem with self? The problem with self is a love of self. We all have a certain love of, of self. I love myself. I'm proud of myself. You know, I think highly of myself, right? And the easiest cure for that is for us to be smitten with love. To, to learn to turn our eyes from ourselves to another and to, to love another person. So this business of a mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. So what Alexander the Great would do is he would take the people that were conquered, he would leave 5 to 10% of them there, take the rest as captives and bring captive nations from other nations and bring them there. So they couldn't speak, they didn't speak the same language, they were racist against each other, they would never team up and, 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 and have a revolt because they couldn't even get along with each other. And that's what he did to the cities that he conquered. So this, this a mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, that's exactly what he did. He took the people away as captives and then he brought other people and made them to, to live there. Okay, let's move on. Um, there's other beautiful things to say, but let's just move on because there's even more beautiful things to come. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Uh, so Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation and lowly riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then later, in the next verse he says, I cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So we said that the first eight verses were referring to the conquest of Alexander the Great, who would come and get vengeance, if you would like, for the people of Israel against the enemies that have tormented them for centuries, right? Oh, wait, I, I really can't skip uh, verse 8. So what did Alexander the Great do to Jerusalem? Like, that's what he did to Tyre and Sidon and Syria. What did he do to Jerusalem? You know, historically, what he did to Jerusalem? Nothing. In fact, he loved Jerusalem. And when he went and conquered nations in the east, you know, Persia and so on, and he would always pass back through Jerusalem. It's said that the first time Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, writes that the first time Alexander the Great was to pass through Jerusalem, he had a dream or a vision where he saw standing before him the high priest in the temple. And the high priest was wearing a, temp a, a turban and it said, on the turban it said, Holy to the Lord. And when he saw that and when he saw the turban, he worshipped before the altar and he, he heard a voice telling him like it is right for you to worship before th this altar and he left. So he entered Jerusalem the next day. Who did he see as he entered? He entered of course with no regard for anything, temple, shmemple, right? And he barged, who did he see standing there? 
the high priest, wearing what? The turban. And on the turban, what? A gold plate that says, Holy unto the Lord. So what did he do? He worshipped. And then ever since then, when he'd go past through Jerusalem, he'd always bring back treasures for the house of the Lord. Remember we were saying a few chapters ago that the people, when they came to build the temple, when they first, why did they stop? Why did they start building the temple and then they stopped for 15 years? This is a review from something we mentioned a few weeks ago. Because they, when, they, when they started to rebuild the temple with Ezra, some of the people who were there had seen the temple of Solomon. It had only been 70 years. So some of them had seen the temple of Solomon. And they were saying Solomon had all the money in the world, all the political power. Solomon had everything on his side. David had conquered the world and gathered, amassed an enormous amount of wealth because he wanted to build the temple and he didn't, and God told him not to, your son will build it. And so Solomon had unlimited resources and it took him, it took him years and it took him eight years or 50 years or I can't remember how long, I think eight years took Solomon to build the temple. What are we going to do? Bunch of captives coming back from captivity and so it says when Ezra placed the cornerstone, there was a mixed sound and people couldn't tell whether people were laughing or mourning, said in Ezra. It's very sad. Like people, and, and that describes me being cynical or disillusioned or thinking that the best is behind me. You know, oh my, my 20s were the best year of my life or my 40s were the best year of my life. Or people used to tell me when I was engaged, Okay, they used to tell me, enjoy it because you're, you're, you're never going to be in love as much as you are right now. I always found it so, so depressing. <laughs> like, is that, they'd be like, congratulations, enjoy it. <laughs> like, like, what? That's so negative. Like, that's so like, like, enjoy it because the worst is coming, you know? You haven't seen nothing yet, you know? Right? And one of my colleagues at work, her name was Hannah. Her husband's name is Peter. Hannah Piper, love, I, I love Hannah, very incredibly successful, brilliant surgeon, and her husband, both of them, two of the best surgeons I've ever worked with in my life, both very devout Christians, but very gentle and quiet and um, intelligent about their faith. Anyhow, Hannah says to me, you know, Peter and I have been married for, I think it was about three years by then, she says, every day I love him more, every day I know him more. Every day I discover, I didn't know. And I think to myself, how could there be yet something else which is beautiful about this man? I learned a lot from her and I learned that it's true. I learned that that's true, right? But sometimes we're cynical and we feel like our, our, our best years are behind us. The most glorious things God could have ever done, He's already done in my life. It's all downhill from there. These people who are building the temple coming and Ezra's placing the cornerstone and they've been in captivity for 70 years and the emperor for no good reason of Persia says, why don't you go back and build the temple? I'll give you protection. I'll give you some material. I'll give you money. I'll give you an imperial decree, right? Of course, it was nothing. The resources they were given was nothing like the resources that Solomon had to build the temple. But nonetheless, why didn't they look at the positive side? Some people did, but some people were mourning and saying, it'll never be good, it'll never be great, right? 
who contributed to the building of the temple, to making it even more glorious? They finished rebuilding the temple in a few years. I can't remember, two or four years. I can't remember. This business of Zechariah rebuilding the temple. Who contributed? Alexander the Great. Every time he passes through Jerusalem, he would leave treasures in the temple. Why? Because he had that vision from before. Look what, what God says. I will camp around my house. The image I have of this, and this is my imagination, so take it with a grain of salt, is God putting his hands around, around his house that they were rebuilding, right? He speaks, remember, verses 1 through 7 was all of this destruction. I will destroy the tower, I will this, I will that. But my house, I will, I will camp around my house. Because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. Who's him who passes by and who returns? Alexander the Great. No more shall an oppressor pass through them. Alexander the Great will pass through it, but not as an oppressor. Not as someone to oppress. For now I have seen with my eyes. This is true of you and true of me. Uh, my older daughter loves climbing. She loves challenges. She oftentimes will want to do something and then she'll look to me like she'll start climbing like a climbing wall, which is way beyond her ability, right? And then she'll look to me to see if I'm there, right? And then she'll say, Daddy, don't help me. Yeah, right, don't help me. <laughs> fall and crack your skull open, right? You, you know, so I won't help her. But I'll just hold, I'll just, I'll just put my arms very lightly around her waist as she goes up, you know? She can feel that I'm there, but I'm not helping her. You know how I taught her to swim? She told her to hold on to the side and kick off the wall of the pool, right? And I just put my hand, I realized she was just, she could do it, she was just afraid. So I put my hand under her tummy, right? So she could, she could feel that I'm, she could feel that I'm there. But I'm not doing, I'm not carrying her, I'm not supporting her. At best, I'm tickling her, you know? But she knows that I'm, she knows that I'm there. That's the image I have when he says, when he says, uh, I will camp, verse 8, I will camp around my house. Remember we said this, this house that's being rebuilt, this temple which is being rebuilt, is you and me, is our spiritual life, is our life with God is our union with Him, is our relationship with Him. Never be afraid that you will fall in temptation and the devil will get you, you know? Because He was camping around His house, His place, His dwelling place, His temple which is inside of you. He Himself is dwelling inside of it. I tell you the truth, the devil is far more powerful than me and could overcome me in an instant. But I'm not scared of the devil. I'm scared of the Tower of Tyre. What scares me is myself, is what, what I could do, what I could accept to do, not what the devil is going to do to me. Okay, onwards and upwards. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. He is describing here Palm Sunday. He's describing here the entrance of the Lord into Jerusalem. The, the name of the feast properly said in the Coptic Rite, we have seven major lordly feasts. This feast, the proper name of it, and it's the name, it's a, a major lordly feast, is the entrance of the Lord into Jerusalem rather than Palm Sunday. 
right? But it's okay, we can call it Palm Sunday. I'm just telling you what, what the proper name is. Not because I'm, I'm not into semantics, you know me, like potato, potato, call it whatever you want. Doesn't matter. But why is it called the feast of the entrance of the Lord into Jerusalem? Because what we're celebrating is that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Think of what Jerusalem was at that time. Very false worship. When the first thing Jesus does when he enters Jerusalem is what? Goes into the temple and gets rid of the money changers and the people. Why? Because they were doing fraudulent business. They were, I won't go into detail into it. I've talked about it in, in many sermons. But they were basically, the, the, the people selling the, the offerings and the priests were in cahoots. Okay, they were in they were in bed together, and they would sell you an offering, and you take it to the to the priest, and the priest would say, I, "I could offer it for you if you want, but don't you see he's limping a little bit?" And the guy and the person was coming and say, "I don't see he's limping. The guy offering guy just sold it to me. He told me it was a good offering." He goes, "Look, I'm the priest. I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't think it's acceptable before God. You want me to offer it? I'll offer it, but." So then you'd, take, you'd be like, oh, I don't want God to get angry with me and kill me or whatever, smite me. So take the offering, go back to the, the guy who sells the sheep. And the guy who sells the sheep would be like, um, no, man, I mean, it's a good sheep. It's fine by me. If you want another one, I can give you another one. You're like, no, but I want my money back. No, sorry, no refunds, you know. Uh, and then and this and that, okay, fine. I'll take him back for half price, but you pay, pay full price for the next one, right? And so the priests... And the people selling the offerings, they were in bed together and they were splitting the profits, right? And the worst part is everybody knew it, but they couldn't do anything. They were powerless against this theocracy, you know, the power that was. So this was, this was the Jerusalem Jesus was entering. And I'm telling you this not so that we can demonize the, 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 the priests at the time, the high priests at the time and all of this. No, I'm telling you this because the feast of the entrance of the Lord into Jerusalem is the feast of the entrance of the Lord into my heart, into my life. Be, he entering and he enters as a king. Behold, your king is coming. We're celebrating the entrance of the king into my life and he's going to purge out all the stuff that's in there that doesn't belong all the injustice that's in my heart that doesn't belong, right? And so you think the king is coming in as a conqueror to conquer. He's coming like Alexander the Great with chariots and armies. No, he's humble, lowly. St. Athanasius and St. Irenaeus talk about, they talk about the divine invasion into humanity. And they say, unlike any other invader, just St. John Chrysostom says the same thing. He says, unlike any, un, any other invader, they inv the Lord Jesus Christ invaded humanity silently. A babe born in a manger, humbly, quietly, no fanfare, no trumpets, no armies, lowly, riding on a donkey, lowly, born in a manger, he came to save us. This is our king. This is how he saves us from the Tower of Tyre. When we see how beautiful he is, how humble he is, how gentle he is, how kind he is, right? St. John Chrysostom, in relation to the, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. 
Jesus enters on a baby donkey, not even a full-grown donkey, a baby donkey, the colt a full of a donkey. So, the chariots, the horses, the bow, like all implements of war, they're cut off. What does Jerusalem mean? Yerusalem. You know, if you, if you know any, any Arabic or you're, you know, we're fortunate because there's these Semitic languages are all similar. Yaru, yara, to see. Salim, salam, peace. To see peace. Jerusalem was also a city built on a mountain. Is also a city built on a mountain. The side of the mountainside, that's called the, 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 the Valley of Kidron. You'll notice many times you'll see it, it, it mentioned the Valley of Kidron. If you ever have an opportunity to visit the Holy Land and visit Jerusalem, you'll see very clearly it's on a mountain. And if you're staying in a hotel outside Jerusalem and you decide to walk into the old city of Jerusalem, you'll know it's a mountain because you'll be out of breath by the, time you get, by the time you get up there, right? So in the, the Valley of Kidron and the other side of the valley is the Mount, is the mount of Olives, right? So, anyhow, so Jerusalem is set on this mountain. What does Jesus say? A city on a hill can be seen by everybody. Do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it may give light to all the house. Right? Jerusalem was a city on a hill. Why? So that people could see, not this Jerusalem that Jesus entered that was full of fraud and false worship and all of this, but that people could see the city of peace, the place where the king of peace resides, right? This is the entrance of the Lord into Jerusalem. This is the entrance of the Lord into my life to bring peace in my life, peace between me and myself, peace between me and my neighbor. Jesus teaches us, you know, that we have to forgive our brother if we want God to forgive us. He's the God of peace, right? And so here, all of this is here talking about peace. The chariot will be cut off from Ephraim. Ephraim, uh, you'll see this come up again and again and again. Who is Ephraim? E Ephraim was this younger son of Joseph. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 10 sons, uh, 12 sons, right? His 11th son, Joseph, was his favorite right? And Joseph of the robe of many colors and all of that. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, right? Ephraim was one of the provinces of, 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 of Israel in the north. And so it became very symbolic when it says Ephraim, it was very symbolic of the northern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Israel, after the kingdom got separated in two between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, right? We talked a little bit about that before. But, and then the northern kingdom, if you remember, they were all idolatrous. They all worshipped idols. They were, they were terrible. And they also harassed the southern kingdom. And they, they even teamed up with foreign nations and made peace treaties with them to attack Jerusalem, right? And to attack Judea. So he's saying here that that I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and so on. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, so from like one end of the world to the other, and from the river to the ends of the earth, the common...
Beautiful commentators say the river here is like the river Jordan from which comes baptism and that the baptism and the and evangelism and the gospel will spread to the ends to the ends of the earth, right? Carrying on really quickly this last little bit about how he will save his people. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today, I will declare that I will restore double to you. Uh, there's a beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, article by one of the early church fathers. I can't remember who. Um, and I looked for it today, but I couldn't find it. Talking about this as this return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today, I declare I will restore double to you how this is prophetic or can, be re can resemble the, the souls that went down to Hades. So Jesus, after he was crucified and before he resurrected, what was he doing? He wasn't just like chilling in the tomb. His body remained in the tomb. His soul went down to Hades like every other soul that had died before the resurrection. And he preached the gospel to them in Hades and he took them all with him to paradise. So. He's saying, you prisoners of hope, those who went down to Hades and had hope of the resurrection or hope that Christ would come, rejoice, return to the stronghold. What's the stronghold? To paradise. You prisoners of hope, even today I declare that I will restore double to you. And uh, St. John Christum talks about, or is it maybe St. Didymus the Blind, talks about how, what's this restore double? He says, when God allows us to suffer, if we continue to have hope in Him, Despite our suffering, we continue to have hope in Him. He promises us that He will restore double to us, double what was lost. Who is the iconic, you know, representation of this? The, 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 yeah, Job, right? Lost everything and God gave him double in, in Job 42 of all that he had lost. This part here, I have bent Judah as my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man, is prophetic in its context of Joseph Maccabees. So about 130 years before Christ, this, this amazing character comes up, and a lot of people thought he was the Messiah, but then, he died, and after he died, Jerusalem got reconquered. He, Joseph Maccabees, or Maccabeus, depending on the translation or whatever, he raised up like a, a small army in Jerusalem and went and fought against the Greeks and liberated Jerusalem from the Greeks. And so for about a hundred years, 80, I can't remember, to a hundred years, they had they had freedom, they were an independent state, and they had freedom to worship God however they wanted to. And, and, and that was restored. And then the Romans came and conquered them, and then it became a Roman state. Like when Jesus was born and so on, it was, it was a part of the Roman, Roman Empire, right? So here he's saying here that I have fitted, I have uh, bent my, the, the bow of Judah is Joseph Maccabees, who was from the tribe of Judah. And he goes and he fights against the Greeks and he gets liberation for them. Then the, the last couple of verses, then the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The, the Lord will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds of the south. 
The Lord of hosts will defend them. There's another part here where he talks about a banner. Here we go. Lifted up like a banner over his land. What's this business of the banner? The part before it is obvious. For they shall be like jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over his, over his land. The, the conquering nations in that time, it was very normal for them that they would, they would bring banners with them and they, would, and they would put them over the gate of the city that they conquered. Like, imagine, hmm? Yeah, like a flag. And so it was a sign of, it was a sign of victory and it was a sign of conquering, right? When it would be done to you, it would be a sign of being conquered, you know? Imagine, uh, like imagine if you, you owned a property, you owned a house or something. And, uh, you, you know, uh, your address is, uh, you know, 15 Smith Road or something. And you have a little sign that says, you know, 15 Smith Road. And above it, it says like, you know, home of the Boutroses or something. And then somebody comes and buys our house. We sell our house or whatever. And they scrape out home of the Boutroses, right? And right. And now it says like, you know, like home of the whatevers, Right. You know, and they just kind of, but they just, they just scrape it off, you know, or they vandalize it, right? And you happen to be driving by long after you sold the house. Even then it would be painful like that, you know, that's what, that's what this, this business of like victory at, at that time in war was very much about humiliating your enemies, right? But he says here, I will lift up my flock like a banner over their land. They'll be like jewels of a crown. Another thing that kings, conquering kings would do at that time is they would take the crown. They, they would like, like Saul did this with King Agag when he conquered the Amalekites and God told him, kill everybody. He, he kept the king. Why? Because you want to humiliate, you want to you parade him. They would do parades and they would, they would dress the king up of that they would dress him up like a, in a kind of like in a tutu you know or something you know humiliate him they they they're showing haha we were victorious over that nation right the king and the very ceremoniously of the the victor the victor king victorious king would take in a very ceremonial way would take the crown off the head of the conquered king and put it on his head i am now king of your land Humiliate him. How many of us have been humiliated in some fashion before sin or before our own lusts or before our own desires or before, before our own self-destructive behaviors, before our own self and tried and tried and tried. He's saying here, look, I will lift up. He's talking about his flock here. They shall be like the jewels of a crown. He's saying, you know what? You will no longer be humiliated by those who conquer you. I will make you like the jewel in the crown. I will make you like the banner of victory. And relate this back to the part before it here, where he says,
where he says, yeah, I raised up your sons, O Zion. Now that was the part of Alexander the Great. His arrow would be like lightning. God will rule the trumpet. War was from the south. Anyhow, you get the picture that this is all about, it's all about victory. Victory over the conquering enemy. This is, this is a chapter of justice. But when we see this in, a, in, in its, when we see this in how, how like God has brought us justice, God has not brought us justice by doing to the nations that were mentioned up here, Hadrach, Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, Sidon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon, Ashdod. God has not gotten us justice by, by demolishing them. Yes, Alexander the Great went and destroyed them. But the ultimate victory, the ultimate victory is that all of these nations were evangelized. All of them heard the gospel. All of them received the gospel. There's a, a, a beautiful, beautiful verse. I'll find it for you in Hebrews and we'll end with this. believe it's Hebrews 10. When in doubt, ask Google. reference and then I'll be able to tell you Jeremiah 31 Hebrews 8 yes Hebrews 8 Talking about a new covenant. Let me just pull up the whole chapter. So, St. Paul is saying here, for if the first covenant, he's saying how God will provide a new covenant. His first covenant was with Abraham that God would bless him and make him a blessing. His new covenant is with us. He says, if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is from Jeremiah 31. St. Paul is quoting Jeremiah 31. 
Now, according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor nor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the last to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. What, he, what is he saying here? Look what he says. He says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not according to the covenant when, that I made with their fathers in the day when, when I took them and led them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. So God, you made a covenant with them and you led them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. So what are you going to do now? How are you going to lead them now? He says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No more I will lead them by the hand. Now I will lead them by their hearts. Why? How will you do that, Lord? Look at the last verse. I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I shall remember no more. I tell you the truth. I'll ask you a question. Finish with this. What's more powerful? To say to God, I love you or to feel that you are loved by God? One of the fathers makes a beautiful comparison. He says, St. Peter said to Jesus, I love you more than all of these. I will never deny you. And he tells him, you will deny me this tonight. You will deny me three times. Another disciple described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when Jesus went to his trial and when he went to the cross, he went with him all the way. The only disciple, St. John, was at the cross, right? So what's more powerful, to tell God I love you or to look at my life and see how much I am loved? Much more powerful in times of trouble and trial in the time of the cross to reflect on how much I am loved. Now, how do you do that? Let's get real practical. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. How merciful has God been to me? How kind has God been to me? How patient has God been with, with me? My repentance becomes the wellspring, the, the endless fountain of the revelation of God's love for me. When I see how sinful I have been and how much God has forgiven me. This is, of course, if you don't do it in a, in a self-centered way. If you do it in a self-centered way, and you look at your sins and you look at how horrible of a person you are, you'll just get depressed and hate your life, right? No, don't do that. I look at my sins in the light of the love of God. God has loved me so much despite all of my sins. How much He has loved me. This is how He conquers, how He conquers me, how He brings down my, my, my tower of Tyre. Right? And there was this bit about, about a, an arrow will come out of Judah. Who is the arrow that comes out of Judah? The Lord Jesus Christ with his love. 
to conquer us. This chapter is all about the nations who were heathen and pagan and far from God being conquered by his love. But it's also about me and being conquered by his love, loving him rather than loving myself. Glory be to God forever and ever. Let's pray.